Well, good morning. If you'd like to go ahead and take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Mark, we have recently been spending our time looking through the book of Mark and seeing the message that Mark is bringing about about the Christ. Primarily, that we have seen the relationship that Christ has with His kingdom. He is the king of His kingdom. And that has been emphasized over and over and over again in the book of Mark. We had the opportunity to study about that on Saturday morning at the Jay's Place study. And and just to emphasize this beautiful picture of Christ being coronated as the king as He was baptized in the Jordan as He rises up out of the water and the heavens tear open and and the Spirit descends upon Him like a dove and you hear the voice from heaven, You are My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And just this awesome picture showing us as the reader, this is the Son of God come into His creation. But not everybody else got that picture. And it wasn't actually until Mark 8 that we, that we finally have this kind of realized and, and spoken aloud by those who are with Him. Peter making that great confession, You are Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. But then right after that, as we studied, we learned that Jesus uses this opportunity to tell them, warn them, of His upcoming death. And that doesn't set well with His disciples. They're struggling with that. Peter is struggling with that. And so I want to continue on from there. Actually, we're going to be moving down into chapter 9. And I want us to consider this event that happened sometime after this, known often to us as the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered about this event? Have you ever read this, 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 that happened during the life of Christ and thought, what's that all about? What's going on here? If you haven't read this passage, it reveals to us an event in Jesus' life that He shares with three of His closest disciples. James, John, and Peter are escorted along with Christ up to a mountain and they have this great experience. It's recorded in Mark chapter 9, Matthew chapter 17, and also Luke chapter 9, but we're going to primarily keep ourselves here in Mark as we study through his account of what transpired. Let's read this and let's figure out from from what we know exactly what's happening, but what exactly does it mean as well? Pick up with me in verse 2. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain apart by themselves, and He was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah." Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, He commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead So they kept his words to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead 
meant. Now I want to stop right there. We're going to read the rest of that passage, verses 11 through 13. But this gives us a good picture of what's going on currently. Jesus escorting His disciples to the top of a high mountain, and there He is transfigured. Now that word transfigured or transfiguration, we might have a feeling that that's a very spiritual, very religious word, but it's really not. Probably the reason that we have that note is because we can probably count the number of times that we've heard that word said in our lives on one hand. And all of those times happened within the context of the church. You just don't hear too many people talking in their regular, regular everyday lives about being transfigured or somebody was transfigured or something happened to describe it in such a way as that. And it might lead us to have the question, what is exactly does that mean? That he was transfigured. Have I been transfigured? Have you been transfigured? Do we know anybody that has experienced this that we can, we can say, okay, I kind of understand what's going on now. I hope that the answer to those questions is yes. That we do know someone who's been transfigured. Because the word transfigured simply means transformed. A transformation takes place. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 is the exact same word used here. Paul uses saying that we should not be conformed to this world. We shouldn't be made like this world, but we should be transformed. That word Greek in the Greek is metamorpho. Metamorpho. It means metamorphosis. That's where we get our word metamorphosis. So Paul is telling us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we have to be metamorphosized, if that's even a word. We have to be transformed. He could have said we have to be transfigured. Just like Jesus was transfigured. He was changed. He was transformed. But what kind of metamorphosis did He undergo? Well, as we read on, His clothes became shining and white. And you notice that Mark says they weren't white like, like the white that you get from a launderer. No launderer on earth could have washed these clothes. We, we shouldn't picture even a brand new pack of white t-shirts. Not even that white. He says he was white like snow. You ever went out on a really snowy day? You got a nice, beautiful layer of snow. None of the grass, like, you know, we always get snow and grass messes it up and it's poking through everywhere. No, a really good snow where you just have nothing but white and you step outside and immediately your head hurts. You got to squint your eyes because the sun is beating off. That's so bright you can't even see what's in front of you. That's the way he's described here. The brightness of his, of his clothes shining like, like, like just this bright snow. And that's a very similar vision that we see in other places in the Bible. What they are experiencing now, this, this vision of Christ radiating brightly, is very similar to what John sees in Revelation chapter 1. As John is exiled on the island of Patmos, he witnesses this, this vision on the day of the Lord. And listen to what he says he sees, starting in verse 12. I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like a fine brass, as, it refined, as if refined in the furnace, and his voice 
as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth when a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. John is describing the glorious view of Christ as he approaches him and brings him this message on the island of Patmos. He sees the radiant glory of the Lord. And again, we find similar accounts in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses is conversing with God and he makes this request. God, I want to see your glory. Whatever has transpired until this point as God is revealing Himself and His will to Moses, Moses comes up with this idea, I I need to see this. I want to see the glory of the great I Am. And the response that God gives him is, it will kill you. You can't see it. No man can look upon my face and live, but I will allow you to see my back. And so he has this experience where God passes by him and covers him with his hand. But after he passes by, Moses is allowed to see the back of the glory of God. And then in Exodus 34, we have this this encounter with the Israelites. That sounds similar to what we see here. Verse 29 says, Now it was so, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Moses sees a portion of the glory of God, and it causes his skin of his face to glow, to radiate. John sees the glory of Jesus Christ on the island of Patmos and describes it as nothing less than the strength of the sun shining upon Him. Jesus is transformed on the Mount of Transfiguration. He is changed in a a very physical way. There is a change that takes place there. And it seems that what is happening is His apostles are at least in some way Beholding a measure of the glory of God. And I want you to think about what Peter writes about this in 2 Peter 1. Because it's, I tell you, I've, I've admitted this before. I, Peter's one of my favorite uh, of, the, of the apostles. But Peter really doesn't have a lot of great things to say during this encounter. But listen to what he says later, after he's had time to really think about things. He says, starting in verse 16. <clears throat> We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. Peter's telling the recipients of this letter, the things that I'm telling you aren't something that was just made up by somebody that I've just been tricked. I've been suckered into believing. No, I'm an eyewitness not only of Jesus of Nazareth. I'm an eyewitness of the majesty of Jesus. 
I have seen His glory. And I have heard the voice from the excellent glory that was proclaimed on the mountain. So they experience this and they remember this and it is an awesome sight in their mind. It needs to be an awesome sight in our mind. We need to view this and see what's happening here. That for the first time in the apostles' lives, for the first time in Jesus' life, after He has been kind of hiding and withholding His identity in some way, it is on full revelation. This is the Son of God. But on top of that sight comes this other event, which can't be explained as anything short of incredible. Jesus is seen conversing with none other than Moses and Elijah. Now, my thought every single time I read, I read this passage is how did they know that was Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus? It says that, that as Mark records this, that, that his clothes, he, there's this change, his clothes are shining, they're white like, like snow, and Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking. How did they know that? Well, I'm not really for sure how they know that. But, but somehow, they're able to tell that's who this is. And what an awesome experience. Clearly seen here, are these two historic figures from Jewish past, and they're not depicted as dead and gone. That's really important for us to see here. There wasn't two carcasses came up, and we assumed it to be Moses and Elijah. It was two bodies, two men who were conversating with Jesus, interacting with Jesus. They are depicted in this passage as alive and talking with their Savior. And that reminds me of what Jesus is going to say in just a few chapters. Mark chapter 12, the Sadducees are going to come to Him and try to trap Him in this question about the dead and, and who will a, the, the wife belong to of these seven brothers in the resurrection which they didn't even believe in. And His response to them is to take them back to the conversation between God and Moses at the burning bush. And to remind them what God says. I, not that I, am, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am the God. I am not the God of the dead. I am the God of the living is what Jesus was showing them there. And clearly, that is seen here. That these men, Elijah and Moses, while having passed from this life long before, aren't lost to the abyss. They're not lost to uncertainty. In fact, the picture that we see here is almost a fulfillment of what Jesus has said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And now, the law, Moses was the lawgiver, and the prophets, Elijah, being one of the chiefest prophets of the Old Testament, are standing here before the Lord. And what an interesting picture. Because what we see is in their conversation with one another, they're harmonious. They're not there fighting with one another. They're there in fellowship, in a sense, with one another. And so what that reminds us then is that the Law and the Prophets have been talking about Jesus for years. Throughout the Old Testament, underneath the Old Covenant, the Law and the Prophets talked about the coming of the Christ. And now the Christ has come and the Law and the Prophets are no longer talking about Him. They're talking with Him. 
They have now come to a, to a culmination, in a sense, of them being together. And that is an awesome view. And I wonder if Peter and James and John looked at this, and, and obviously it seems by reading of the text that they, they really they, they weren't sure what to think about it, but I wonder if they have the thought that I have, and that's why Moses and Elijah... I mean, we, we've already mentioned the law and the prophets and the connection there, but, but why specifically these two? Why specifically Elijah? Why specifically Moses? Many have assumed and many have made guesses as to why these two are the ones that are seen. And, and some of those are really, really good, and some of those are, are way out there on a limb. And I'll be honest, I would love to hear from you all afterwards about some of your thoughts as to why we see Moses and Elijah in this account. But there are some connections that I want to make between these three figures that I believe can lend ourselves to seeing and understanding why it was that Elijah and Moses appear in this encounter. The first one might be vindication. Moses and Elijah are both pictures of people who have been unjustly treated. Moses experiences a great disservice, a great persecution, before he's even able to remember it. As a child, he is sentenced to death by the Pharaoh for his fear that the Israelites are going to raise up and become a greater nation. And so all the male children are to be killed. Now Moses is saved from that. He is raised in in the Pharaoh's house. But yet, as he walks one day, he sees an Egyptian abusing, beating one of his fellow Hebrews. And so upon looking this way and then the other, he slaughters the Egyptian. He saves the, the, the Hebrew that is being abused by this Egyptian. You would think that that would garner some amount of thanksgiving from his people. But instead, upon finding some Hebrews fighting it becomes very clear that they are even holding him in contempt for what he has done. As he tries to break up the fight between these two fellow brethren, the response that he is slapped with is, what are you going to do? Are you going to kill me too? Are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? Of course, this causes Moses to fear. News of this has made its way to the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh now wants Moses dead, and he has to flee to Midian. And even upon his return from Midian, With God, he faces opposition from his own people. He faces opposition from the Pharaoh. He is treated unjustly over and over again through his life, but finds vindication in God. God establishes him as the leader of this great nation and is with him as they come out of slavery and head towards the promised land. And likewise, Elijah, more than once, Elijah is depicted as in fear for his life. But man, that is really seen prior to the contest on top Mount Carmel. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we have that recorded. And we're going to read from there in just a moment. 1 Kings 18, 36. But I want you to think about what happens prior to this contest. Elijah is coming to speak to the king. And as he draws near to the king... Ahab sees him and says, Is that you, O troubler 
of Israel. Now I want you to think about what Elijah has done to deserve such disrespect. He has warned the people that they are in sin. He has warned the people that God will, will judge them righteously and His wrath will be pulled out, poured out upon them. He has warned the people that they must turn back to God and that they can find forgiveness and they can find righteousness in Him. Over and over again, He has shown His love for His people despite the fact that they have scoffed at Him and abused Him. And now you have Ahab, one of the most wicked kings of Israel, who looks at him and doesn't recognize that he's trying to help. He says, look at you, you troublemaker. Is that you, Elijah, the troublemaker of Israel? It's very clear that he is not being treated with any form of respect. He is certainly suffering many things at the hands of his own people. And all of this comes to a boiling point at this contest of the 450 prophets of Baal versus Elijah. Or we might say the 450 prophets of Baal versus God. And in this account, we find vindication for Elijah. In 1 Kings 18 and in verse 36, we read a prayer of Elijah. It comes right before the offering of the evening sacrifice. Elijah prays to God, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that You are God in Israel, and I am Your servant, and that I have done all these things at Your Word. What is Elijah praying for? He's praying that God's glory will be seen by the people of Israel and that He will not be seen as the troublemaker, but as the servant of God. He's saying, give me vindication, not so that I can be glorified, so that you will be honored. And that's exactly what happens two verses later as the fire falls from heaven we see in a sense again, Moses on the mountain sees the glory of God pass before him. Elijah on the mountain sees the glory of God's power falling down, burning up the sacrifice, burning up the, 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 the water around the sacrifice that had been poured on it. And shortly thereafter, the prophets of Baal are executed. There is a grave connection between these two men who suffered many things and were vindicated by God and Jesus who is trying to get his disciples to see that I'm going to be suffering many things, but I am going to be vindicated by God. He will be charged with the Jews with blasphemy and all sorts of outrageous lies against him. Rome will put him to death as a criminal, and yet he will stand before God justified, vindicated, and we can stand before God justified and vindicated through Him. So there's one connection that we see why Elijah and Moses perhaps are used in this account to show this idea of vindication. But there are other connections as well. Other connections would be that both Elijah and Moses saw God's power on a mountain. And now here they are on a mountain and they're withholding with, uh, the excuse me, beholding the, the, the power and the glory of God. 
You see that in Moses on Sinai. You see that in Elijah on Carmel. Both of these men perform miracles. I think sometimes we think about the Old Testament and get the idea that there were just people running around through the Old Testament performing miracles everywhere. That's not the case. Your two primary miracle performers are Moses and Elijah. Certainly there were some other prophets who did as well. But primarily we read of Moses and Elijah. But I want you to consider another point. And that is both Moses and Elijah are directly tied to the coming of Christ and the coming of salvation and judgment. In Malachi chapter 4, as Malachi records the closing remarks in the days of Nehemiah, really the closing remarks of God prior to the coming of John, he says in verse 4, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Again, this is during the time of Nehemiah. This is during the time when the people have rebuilt the temple that had been destroyed. They have rebuilt the walls. They have reestablished the worship that went on within the temple. And they're trying to reconnect the people with God in this time. And then this message comes to them saying, I am going to send Elijah. And Elijah will come prior to the return or the arrival of the Christ, the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And there will be a response to the coming of Elijah. And that is, the people will be restored. They will be changed. The hearts of the fathers will turn back to the sons. The hearts of the sons will turn back to the fathers. So he's speaking about change coming with the coming of Elijah. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 18, in verses 15 through 19, we see another prophecy, this time regarding Moses. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse, uh, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. This is Moses speaking. According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him." And so Malachi closes the Bible, closes the Old Testament with the realization that Elijah is going to return and when he comes there is going to be a restoration of the people and Moses at the beginning of this, of this nation of Israel is telling them there's going to be a prophet that comes that's going to be another Moses. What does that mean? Moses was the giver of the law. He was the leader of the people. He led the people out of slavery, led them through the waters of the Red Sea so that the, the, the enemy that pursued them could not get to them any longer. He led them through the wilderness and led them to the borders of the promised land. And he says, another prophet like me 
That is, a prophet that's going to do the things that I have done, things similar to what I have done, is coming. And so that brings us, that, that, that brings us to this point where you now see Jesus standing with Elijah and Moses. And I wonder if, these, if things shouldn't be connecting in our minds. This is exactly what God has said is going to happen. Elijah is coming. Moses is coming. Now they're here and they're talking with the fulfillment of that prophecy. And the encounter that we see is very similar to that encounter that Moses experiences on Mount Sinai. The mountain is engulfed in smoke. God speaks to Moses. We see these same things happening in Mark chapter 9 and verse 7. But it's what happens right before this that kind of gets my attention for a moment. You see, Peter earlier made that great confession. Back over in Mark chapter 8, Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? And they have this varied response. But what do you say that I am? And Peter jumps at that, at that opportunity, blurts out, I believe that you are Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. What an awesome, bold statement. It's one of the best statements made by a man in the Bible. And I want you to think about what this, what this great statement made by Peter about the next statement that's going, to be, that's going to come up here at this account. He sees Jesus transfigured. He sees Moses and Elijah. And, and he's looking at all this. And what does he come up with? It's really good to be here. That's kind of an underwhelming statement. But it's an underwhelming statement by an overwhelmed Peter. It says that he's afraid. They're afraid at what they see. He's like, I don't know what to say, but i got to say something. Have you ever experienced that? You ever saw something that was just so amazing, so beautiful, so breathtaking? You're like, I, I don't know what to say, but I feel like this moment should be marked with some statement. And so Peter digs real deep. It's really good to be here, Rabbi. Maybe we should build some tents. We should build some tabernacles. And maybe Peter's thought was, let's extend this moment. Let's build some places for you and Moses and Elijah and we can stay right here and we can listen to you guys talk and sit at your feet forever because this is awesome. But cut off mid-sentence as, as he is proclaiming this idea to him is this voice from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Peter felt like he had something to say. God wants him to realize it's not about what you have to say. You need to hear what my son has to say. You need to hear the message. And Jesus has been trying to get a message through to Peter for a little bit of time now. And Peter's really struggling with that message. And so they suddenly look around. And just as quickly as things started, this event ends. The experience is over. They leave the mountain, not a party of six, but a party of four. Not walking, listening to Moses and Elijah talk to Jesus, but solely listening to Jesus. And what does Jesus tell them? He says, don't tell anybody about what you've seen until after I have risen from the dead. How hard a statement this must have been. We even know that we, we read that they, they kept questioning. What does this mean? 
rising from the dead. I don't understand. And put yourself in their, in their picture for a minute. Put yourself in their picture from what they're saying. Jesus has just been revealed to them as the Son of God by the voice of God from heaven. They've seen the brightness of His glory as the shining uh, snow. They've seen Moses and Elijah, long thought dead, appear to be alive and well talking with Him. And now Jesus is still on this kick about dying? That doesn't make any sense. Peter's shown us he's having a really hard time with this statement. But it's the very fact that Jesus made this statement that tells us what the purpose of this whole thing was all about. See, sometimes we look at this and we say, what did all this mean? And one conclusion that is often come to and is certainly true is that we are seeing a graduation of authority. The authority of the law and the prophets is... is is over and now the authority of Christ is beginning. And that is true, but I would not use the word graduation because Jesus said that He didn't come to destroy it. He didn't come to just leave that behind. He came to fulfill it, to complete it. And so Jesus is completing what the law and the prophets began. But what all this is really meant to teach us, while we may learn secondary things like that from this, What we really need to learn from this is Jesus is trying to get through to Peter and James and John and His other disciples. But Peter especially, because Peter's the one that's being vocal about this, I'm going to die. I'm going to be vindicated. uh, Salvation and judgment is coming through me, but I've got to die. I have to suffer many things. And Peter's having such a hard time with that news. And you think about the the prophecies that we just read. How could this be true? Elijah is going to come to restore the people. You see, that's right where his mind goes. As they walk and they're trying to figure this out, they're trying to piece this together. They go, hey, explain this to us, Jesus. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? I wonder if Malachi 4, 4 through 6 isn't in the back of their minds when they ask that question. Because Elijah is coming to restore the people. And we just saw Elijah here. So doesn't that mean that restoration is about to take place? And if the people are about to be restored and you're the Son of God, why on earth do you have to die? That doesn't make sense why a people restored to you would kill you. And so Peter's, or, or Jesus' response to this is, you're right. Elijah is coming. Elijah comes first and he restores all things. He's telling them what the scribes have been talking about and probably what's in their mind right now, these things are true. And then he asked the question that they're really wondering, how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? If Elijah is going to come, is going to restore the people, it just doesn't make sense why they would kill and, and, and cause him to suffer and to be treated in this way. But then Jesus kind of drops this bomb on them in verse 13. I say to you, Elijah has also come. And they did to him whatever they wished as it is written of, uh, written of him. Some of the other uh, gospel accounts 
refer to the fact that they understand now who he's talking about. They start to put the puzzle pieces together. Jesus' bombshell about Elijah already coming refers to John the Baptist. John the Baptist came to prepare the hearts of the people to be restored. And how was he treated? Well, Herod and Herodias had his head cut off. He was a voice in the wilderness crying out to the people saying, look at your sins, turn back to God, be prepared for the coming of one more mightier than me, more, more noble than me, whose sandal I can't even unstrap. And these people, they, they scoffed at him, they imprisoned him, and ultimately he died for that message of restoration. But even though he came to restore, restoration wasn't done. And that's what Peter wasn't seeing. Restoration wouldn't be complete until a sacrifice was made. A sacrifice fit to be the propitiation for the sins of the people before a just and righteous God. It wouldn't be complete until the Son of Man suffered all things and died on the cross. And that's the application that Jesus is trying to get through to His disciples. And that's the application that we have to see today. They had witnessed His glory. They had witnessed the glory of Christ and they knew He's the Son of God. And so how do we get to that glory? Here it is. We saw it for a moment and now it's gone and we're back to just being this, what we were before the mountain. But how do we get there? And Peter was saying, I don't see how you get there if you have to die. I can't put those pieces together. And what Jesus is trying to show is you need to understand where glory comes from. And that's the dot that Peter hadn't connected. Glory comes through suffering. Just prior to this account, here's what Jesus tells these disciples. In chapter 8, verse 34, starting at His words, whoever desires to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the Holy angels. That's the context of the Mount of Transfiguration. How do you receive glory? How do you follow Christ into His glory? It comes through a cross. It comes through picking up a cross and bearing it. It comes through losing your life as opposed to trying to save it. That was the application then. And that's the application today. What we need to know so very badly is that suffering is not incompatible with glory. Peter could not see that. You cannot be the glorious Son of God and be killed by these men. I won't allow it. Is that not the same attitude that we have so many times? Why do we need to know this so bad? Because we view suffering as very, very negative. When you look at someone who has 
some sort of benign job that is just the very bottom of the totem pole and all of the other things are dumped upon them. Whenever, when, whenever someone has a job that they don't want to do, they go to this person and say, here, you do that job. Whenever someone has a job that they deem to be too dirty, they say, here, you go do that job. We look at that person and we tend to not think what a glorious job they have. Sometimes we even selfishly say, well, pity on them. Because look at how much better my life is than theirs. We view suffering not as a mark of glory, but as a mark of pity. Whenever you look at someone who... in, in in an athletic world, you look at the guys that always sit on the bench, never get to take off the warm-up clothes, while the athletes, the star players, get all the highlights, get all the attention, get all the money. You say, these guys don't deserve honor. You know, we were talking just Saturday about governments that, and the way that they treat people, and the way that some governments treat their people with suffering. And we look at these people whose governments take from them what is theirs and give it to someone else. Who, who prohibit them to worship God the way that they would desire, whether it be worshiping Him in His building or whether it be being able to pray to Him in public places. And we look at those countries and we say, that's a third world country because they don't have the things that we have in our first world country. We don't look at them as glorified places to go visit. You're not planning your vacations to these places. Why is it so important for us to know that suffering is not incompatible with glory? Because all too often when we come to Christ, that's Satan's tool to turn us away. To put suffering in our lap. And our children need to know that following Christ, sometimes your friends are going to think that you're foolish. Your friends might even make fun of you. And you're going to look at that and the temptation is going to be, this isn't glorious. But Christ wants you to know suffering leads to glory. And for us as adults, we look to our own friends who say, well, why, why don't you ever come do the things that we want to do? Our coworkers go out after work to get drinks and want to know why we don't ever do that and how we're just kind of that oddball duck that never is a part of, of, of all the swans. And we suffer. And our families look at us and say, you've got a problem with my life. How dare you? And write us off and treat us illy and we suffer. And the temptation is to say it isn't worth it. But Jesus is telling us it leads to glory. We need to know. We need to know that suffering has always led to glory for God's people. Moses and Elijah suffered and were vindicated and were led to glory. John, the baptizer, suffered in his following of God's Word and was led to glory. Jesus suffered many things, was held in contempt, died on the cross for sins that He did not commit, and was led to glory. If this was true for them, it will be true for us as well. And we have a path to choose. A path that leads to glory. And I hope that we will follow Him. And if we can help you today to take up your cross and know that there will be suffering, you will find things as you grow that are incompatible with Christ. 
you will find things as you grow that can't be continued in. And we have to turn away from those things. We must suffer that. We must put to death the old man and raise up a new man in Christ. But we must know that even though it will be hard, we will not be alone. We suffer together as a family. For those of you visiting with us here at the Lake Street Church of Christ, it is our desire to be a family that suffers with one another. And that when one suffers, the rest of us feel that pain. And when one rejoices, the ones that are suffering feel their joy. And we share with one another in that accord. But that's not the only sense in that we're not alone. Matthew chapter 28, in Jesus' great commission that He leaves His apostles with, listen to what He says. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. He is with us in our suffering. He is with us from the beginning to the end of the age. Amen. Would you suffer with Christ? and be glorified with Him in His resurrection. We would desire to assist you with that. If you would like to make that decision to come to Him today and begin your walk with Him, there is water here, and we are ready. If you have made that decision and you have a need to come back and be restored to Him, it is our desire to pray with you and to help you to be held accountable to Him. If there's something we can do to help, won't you please let it be known. Come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.